Hello and welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 44. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction podcast magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Well, the Strauss brothers gave me a present this year that I'll never forget. Alien vs. Predator 2, Requiem. Now, if you think the idea of aliens and predators beating the freaking crap out of each other is silly, then yeah, go ahead and rent It's a Wonderful Life this weekend. But for the rest of you, listen to your Uncle Norm and take the missus out for a delightful evening of bloody extraterrestrial holiday mayhem. Now, I don't mean to give the impression that this is by any stretch of the imagination a good movie. For every facehugger latching around a bewildered janitor's neck, there are probably at least twice as many plot holes, but... It is exactly the kind of movie you would want to see if you wanted to see this kind of movie. That pretty much sums up my one-minute review. If you're new to the Drabblecast, or if you're just a slacker, be sure to join our discussion forums on the website, www.drabblecast.org, and enter our Nigerian Scam Spam email competition. Details are laid out in the forums and on episode 42, but the gist of it is that we've invented a new literary form and are calling for submissions. A Nigerian scam spam must be short and relatively to the point, based on the general style of spam mail that tries to solicit your participation in a too-good-to-be-true offer. The winner will get thoroughly spammed out to entertain the masses. We've got some good ones up already that you can scope out for inspiration. If you'd like a challenge of a different nature, try writing a Drabble story and send it in to us at drabblecast at yahoo.com. Drabbles are stories exactly 100 words, and it's harder to write a good one than you may think. This week's Drabble story comes to us from Greg Gibby, and it's called Can You Guess My Name? Greg found us from Escape Pod, which is a fantastic weekly science fiction podcast. Check them out at escapepod.org. Can You Guess My Name? by Greg Gibby. After Rob stole the car, he couldn't remember why he had. The theft was clean. No cops were following, and no one seemed to care that his window was rolled down in January. The soft percussion intro to Sympathy for the Devil rang into his car. He answered the phone. Thanks for stealing my car. Rob screamed. The voice over the phone belonged to the horned man sitting in the back seat. Pull over. I have some contracts for you to sign. Twenty minutes later, he changed his cell ring to come feel the reaper and drove off alone. Well, today's story is called The Ark of Hronos by Andon Sharp. Andon writes stories in Seattle, where he frequently imagines going back in time to his high school days in the 70s and asking out the girl he was in love with, instead of dating the girl his mother liked. You've heard Andon here before with episode 32, The Warden's Last Day, and we're happy to have another story by him. So, without further ado, The Ark of Hronos by Andon Sharp. The dentist's pick dug around the fossil and sharp bits of ancient clay flew about Joe Freeman's tanned face like gnats. Safety glasses kept the jagged grains away from the paleontologist's sky-blue eyes and auburn hair. The fossil was a jaw, judging by the lower incisor that protruded from the concrete-like matrix. "'Any results, Jill?' asked Robert Freeman, Jill's husband, 
You've been poking at that hunk of dirt all morning. This hunk of dirt is like nothing I've ever seen, Jill said. Look at this tooth. I think it's modern, but the Matrix is 200,000 years old, if the dating's right. She frowned, returning to the sample with her pick. Robert squinted at the specimen. He sipped water from a bottle, wiping his high forehead with a bandana. Sweat trickled down his graying hair to his strong chin. Honestly, Jill, I, I don't know how you've managed to survive this heat all these years. Spend a few seasons digging in East Africa and you get used to it, she replied, lying a little. The lizards and the flies were the only ones enjoying these hundred-plus degree days. Believe me, there's been times I wished I worked in your air-conditioned truck. Well, I'd invite you in, but there's hardly any room for me and the boys, he said. Are you sorry you came? Jill asked, lifting her head from the fossil. She'd suggested this valley for her husband's experiment. If this technology worked, he'd get any physics post he wanted. Princeton, Columbia, and Oxford had already approached him. While he impressed the world with his flashy ideas, she was happy with the traditional plotting universe of a teaching post with a nice research grant now and then. She'd be happier, though, with a husband who was more attentive. Just maybe this project would save their marriage. Sorry? <laughs> of course not, Robert said, standing to his full six-foot-four-inch height. He smiled his trademark mile-wide grin with a single gold crown and her heart melted. I got an email from Nagoya. The Keiretsu? Yep. They're practically offering me a blank R&D check if Hronos works. You know it will, Jill said, keeping her doubts to herself. The tests had gone well so far, but she thought he was rushing things. Are you on schedule? Actually, we're pushing the next-to-last test up to today. But have you checked everything? Robert rolled his eyes impatiently. <laughs> I know you'd prefer that I go slower, he said. Well, professors in their insulated rooms can wait for results, but the Keiretsus of the world won't, and I'm inclined to fall in with the latter. Jill laid her pick on the table. Don't worry, honey, Robert said. Everything has gone well for six months. Luck is with me. Why would Hronos break now? Jill watched her husband head back to the physics truck, and she returned to the fossil, picking off more matrix around the incisor. She felt a bit dizzy, though from mounting worry or the heat, she couldn't tell. A Nash, Jill called, looking for her assistant. Yes, Dr. Freeman. Born in Hyderabad, a Nash was a doctoral candidate on his first dig. I'm taking a break. No problem, doctor. Anash said, his black eyes shining. I've almost finished checking those measurements. That tooth. He nodded at the incisor. It looks homo sapien. It could be the oldest ever. This could be huge, doctor. Jill grinned happily and hugged Anash. Then her button-down professionalism took hold and she composed herself. Opening the door to the physics truck, she found her husband, along with his assistants, Sven and Antonio, I need to cool off, she said. <laughs> well, welcome to the fridge then, said Antonio, gesturing to a rolling chair. The air in the truck was chilly and stale. We're just about to try another dry run. Jill sipped her own water bottle and studied the three monitors along the wall. 
Her husband was engrossed in a computer readout. Each of the monitors were focused on a dog in the center of a small room, which was in the portal truck a few feet away. The dog was sitting placidly and wearing a thick collar. Ready here, said Sven, a graduate student from Stockholm. On my mark, Robert said. Three, two, one. Sven hit a switch, and the image on the three monitors went brilliant white. The light faded, and the dog was gone. Time matrix is nominal, Sven said. Power at idle. We're good. Great, Robert said. See you boys in an hour. He turned toward Jill. Oh, honey, I didn't even see you come in. Did you see the run? I did. Uh, how's everything going? <laughs> Damn near perfect, he said excitedly. If this run is successful, I'm going tomorrow. I'll make history, sweetheart. We'll make history. He kissed her hard on the lips. Jill's heart leapt for her husband, though it was soon replaced by the dread every wife feels at the departure of her mate to a far-off place. She trusted her husband's faith in his invention, but there was always a chance for error or something unexpected. Robert was doing more than traveling in space. Five of the world's leading physicists had confirmed his calculations of the curvature of space-time, and he had harnessed their power to fulfill a dream as old and as powerful as the dream of human flight before the Wright brothers. His ideas were simple and elegant. All you needed were a few trucks of equipment and a small nuclear reactor, and you could travel back and forth in time. When Robert had asked his wife where he should go on his first time trip, the answer was easy the beginning of humankind. She had studied humanity's earliest origin since a seventh-grade science project. A year ago, she had invited him to her next field dig, and here they were in a wind-blown East African valley. Two hundred millennia ago, this place had been a dry savanna, and many speculated that it was the birthplace of early man. But Jill wanted more evidence to prove it. That is, until Robert said he would bring her the proof himself, from the past. The scientist in Jill was skeptical of Robert's wild promise. There was no substitute for patient gathering of stones and bones. But the wife in Jill hoped the project would pull their partnership out of another kind of valley, the kind that grows between two people whose lives diverge. The old emotion, though muted, was still there, but they had little to draw them together in their middle years. Unlike many men as they aged, Robert became more adventurous, not only intellectually but physically, almost to the point of recklessness. On the other hand, the years made Jill more circumspect, and she found emotional sustenance in the steady hum of conversations among colleagues. She hoped that by working together in proximity, if not on the same project, something new would spark between Robert and her. Time to bring Missy back. Robert said. Getting the tracking signal, Sven said. Power is at maximum. A moment later, the dog appeared in the monitor. Her tongue was hanging out, and she was panting heavily. Something was wrong. Tony, take a look. She's hurt. There's a laceration on her leg. Jill looked at Robert, who seemed unconcerned. It's not serious, Antonio added. It might have been a lion or maybe a cheetah. Jill looked uneasily at her husband. 
Missy came back to the transfer spot just as we trained her, Robert said. The injury wasn't caused by the apparatus, so I'll call this run a success. Tomorrow's the day, people. Tomorrow's the day it all comes together. At 8.10 the next morning, Jill and Robert held each other after Sven and Antonio had gone to the physics truck. I'll be back in the blink of an eye, Robert said. Everything will be all right. They kissed, and she let go of his hand. She watched in the physics truck as Sven and Antonio sent her husband back 3,000 lifetimes. The students fidgeted nervously as the clock ticked. As the 30-minute mark approached, Sven watched his computer screen as if divining his future. Um, something's wrong, he said. I I'm not getting the tracking signal. Jill's heart skipped a beat. What's going on? Jill, don't worry, said Antonio. Run the retrieval program, Sven. The big Swede hit a few keys as three pairs of eyes went up to the monitors. Nothing happened. Okay, we try the fallback program. That means wait one minute and try again. The 60 seconds passed agonizingly slow. When the minute was up, Jill watched the monitors along with the two assistants. Her husband did not appear. For the next three hours, Sven and Antonio ran every version of the retrieval program that they could find, and they rechecked every piece of equipment. They could find nothing wrong. Robert Freeman, physicist and inventor, had disappeared without a trace. Jill cried hard in the camper, a gnash at her side. She waited as one who does not know the fate of a victim swept away by floods or lost in the mountains. Closure was impossible. After nearly a week of around-the-clock attempts, long after Robert's supplies would have run out, Sven and Antonio gave up their attempts at retrieval. Through her shock and grief, Jill let go, believing it was better to move forward than to hang on to lost hope. The digging season still had a few weeks left, and as Sven and Antonio said their goodbyes, Jill returned to the jaw embedded in the hardened clay. Tuning out almost everything, rarely eating, barely sleeping, she painstakingly picked away at the matrix. As each fragment fell away showing more of the fossil, memories of her husband randomly surfaced in her consciousness. The fights, the makeups, the sick kids, all the experiences of marriage and family. After a week of work, the memories pressed on her heart like the layers of earth that once entombed the fossil, and she lost her discipline, nearly hammering at the jaw in grief. Then, a five-centimeter chunk of matrix fell away, revealing the rest of the jaw all at once. Jill screamed, and Anash rushed in, fearing a scorpion or a wild dog had attacked. What is it? Anash asked. What's wrong? Jill stared at the jawbone, shaking, and Anash picked it up. On the first premolar, dirty and pitted but unmistakable, was a modern gold crown. Disbelieving his eyes, Anash went inside to retrieve a photograph of Robert and his assistants. In it, Robert smiled his characteristic broad grin, and on the first premolar, on the right side of the jaw, was the gold crown. It's Robert, 
It's my husband. Robert had come back, just as he had promised, though he followed a longer arc of time than either of them had expected. And he had brought her proof from the past, though Jill found little comfort in this fact. that was our story. I hope you enjoyed it. If there's one thing the 80s did in shaping my impressionable teenage mind, it was forever welding the concept of time machines with DeLoreans. Even in this story, with no mention of a hot rod car, I somehow pictured two flaming tire tracks smoking up the lab after Robert vanished. Another unfortunate side effect of the 80s on my imagination was Teen Wolf. Now all the werewolves and stories I read look like Michael J. Fox in my head. Ugh. Well, time for some warm regression of a different sort. Feedback on episode 38, The Trifecta. The Trifecta was a special we did of three contrasting shorter stories, Witness by Susan McKellarin, Wigan's General Store by Basil Goodevenos, and Pork and Steak Eye Meet Philan Shepherd by Graham Fielding. KTW thought Witness was just right, but the other two stories would have benefited from being a smidgen longer. T. Baker said, There are many clever ideas which should only be told in short form. I think all three of these fit that criteria. Any extension would have diluted the concepts into blandness. If I had my druthers, two-thirds of the Drabblecast stories would be of this length, and the remainder would be the current length. Thanks for all your feedback, and we will be doing more three-part specials time and time again. That's all for this week. Tune in next week for more flash fiction of an atypical nature. If you're still in the giving mood this holiday season, feel free to donate to us via our donations link on the website. You can now find downloadable MP3s to past episodes in the Drabblecast warehouse, a link to which is also on our website. The Drabblecast uses a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial no derivatives license, which means you can't change it or sell it, but you can share it with whoever the crap you want. Our staff is made up of co-editors Kendall Marchman, Luke Coddington, and myself, Norm Sherman. Reminding you that Sven doesn't really like being called the Big Swede. Ooh.